Our sermon lesson this morning is from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. If you want to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start reading at verse 18. Before we get into this reading, just let me backtrack a little bit. You know that last week we introduced this theme, this theme that is been embraced by everyone who calls themselves uh, a part of the family here at the Way Church. And we said uh, that it is a challenge that all of us are going to be all for one, that we're going to be all for one people in our lives. And the reason is simply because there is one who is for us all. Here's what we looked at last week. How doing that means that there is every opportunity, every Sunday, there's an opportunity for us to come here and find rest for our souls. What I didn't point out last week is this, this symbol up above. You guys have seen it before. It brings in elements of our logo, but what does this symbol actually mean? Anybody recognize it? It's got the I and the X. It's the first two letters of Jesus' name in Greek. It's called the key row, the yictus. It's got the I and the X there. And looking at this symbol might not mean much to most people, but when you look at it, you see Jesus. You see his first initial and his last, one for Jesus Christ. Our symbol for education and for wisdom is this. It's four arrows that typically make up the head of the fish, if you will, in our, in our logo, but they're pointing in. They're pointing inwards to form a cross. And the reason for that is when we sit down and we open up God's word and we see every believer as a disciple for wisdom, we start to see ourselves as people, as disciples who are taking the teachings of God and making them ours, internalizing to us. And ultimately that's what education is about, Christian education. It is about growing in the wisdom of God. Our lesson from 1 Corinthians is gonna differentiate God's wisdom from worldly wisdom. I want you to keep your finger in here because this is going to serve as the basis for our sermon this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God's was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of the God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are 
so that no one may boast before God. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with elegance or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory from before time began. This is the word of our God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How many of you know how the first president of the United States, how George Washington died. If you know that story, uh, besides Abby, who is studying historic preservation at the university named after George Washington's mother, how many of you actually know that story? How many of you know what caused him to die? We actually have a fair, quite a fair amount of records um, about the death of George Washington because there are many doctors and surgeons called in and they all took copious notes. Um, but the cause of death is most often believed uh, to be that he came down with a cold, developed a fever because he had an inflamed throat, an infected throat. And because of the swelling there, he died. But that's not why he died. You know why he died? It's because of a bad idea. And that bad idea has a name. It's called bloodletting. Back in that day and age, back in 1799, doctors and surgeons used to think it was a good idea that if you were unhealthy to cut open your veins and let blood out. They believed that the body was made up of four different types of liquids. There was yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. And if you were unhealthy, it was because those four liquids in your body were out of balance. So we should cut you open and allow the body to let it rebalance itself. So if you had a headache, try some bloodletting. If you have heartburn, try some bloodletting. If you're dealing with a little bit of depression, bloodletting's the answer. And if you laugh at bad jokes, try some bloodletting. It'll make everything better. It was believed to be the go-to basic cure for any ailment in that day. And that's why in 1799, just two years into his retirement, when George Washington, uh, our retired president of the United States, the founder of this country, developed a fever, had an inflamed throat, four doctors 
thought they were justified in letting two and a half liters of blood, almost a gallon of blood, 40% of the man's blood out of his body because they thought it would heal him. People believe now, doctors, historians believe now that bloodletting not only hastened George Washington's death, but the amount of dehydration, the vicious flow of blood and the imbalance of electrolytes in his body because of bloodletting may have been the cause of George Washington's death. History is full of bad ideas. A lot of bad ideas that people once thought were good ideas. Can I give you some? Astronomers used to think that the earth was the center of the universe. You ever hear that idea before? Cartographers used to think that the world was flat. Doctors used to prescribe cigarettes to their patients to heal their ailments. That was after they thought bloodletting was a bad idea. <laughs> People used to believe that nationalities were inherently inferior than other races. If you look at history books, the pages are chock full of examples of bad ideas that were believed to be good ideas. Ideas that people thought were wise, but have since proven foolish. How about today? Do we believe any bad ideas or do we only believe good ideas? How about in regards to truth and wisdom? What do we believe to be good ideas? I think uh, this last week I was reading uh, the most recent issue of Time Magazine and the author of, uh, of one of the editorial articles was the award-winning um, filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. He summed up the issue of what we think is a good idea, what we think is a bad idea quite nicely with this quote. He said this, these days, the safest way for someone to appear wise is by being skeptical by default. He said, we seem sophisticated when we say we don't believe and we seem disingenuous, untruthful when we say we do believe. You see, past bad ideas recognized now to be just that has kind of made us a bit unsettled when it comes to our present understanding of what's true, our present understanding of what the result is, of what wisdom is. And the result? History seems to have repeated itself. More bad ideas. This one has a name too. It's called postmodernism. And in postmodernity, truth is out. And you know what's king? Relativity is king. And my feelings reign supreme. The only thing we can be certain about is our uncertainty. The only thing that I'm convicted about is that there are no convictions. The only thing I'm confident about is that there is nothing that we can truly be confident about. That's postmodernism. Look into any university and what takes place. Learning isn't happening anymore. Instead, it's constructing meaning. There's no more history anymore. Instead, there's just multi-textual voices from the past, all equally valid, all equally true. 
The same with English literature. There's no one right interpretation of Romeo and Juliet. No, everyone's interpretation is equally valid and equally true. People are encouraged to speak what? Your truth, not the truth. Young people are encouraged by their role models to do them, be true to yourself, and be skeptical of institutions that are trying to tell you what is true, what is real. Postmodernism's concept of truth and wisdom, it's a bad idea. And why am I confident? Why am I convicted in saying that? It's because it's another example of bloodletting. It's intellectual bloodletting. We've opened up our veins to objective truth, to objective standards of what is wise and a good idea, and we have let our brains bleed out any objective, any stance of what is the truth, capital T truth, and we've replaced it with your truth, your feelings. And I don't think I'm overreacting when I say the shift, the shift that has taken place from taking truth, reality, and wisdom, and letting that determine our thoughts and feelings, to now postmodernism shifts where thoughts and feelings determine truth, is an epidemic of epic proportions. I don't think I'm overreacting when I say that because I know what God's word says to be true about what determines my thoughts, what determines my feelings. It's my heart. That determines how I feel. That determines what I think, so to speak. And Jeremiah chapter 17 catches God's words talking and what God has to say about my thoughts, about my feelings that come from my heart. He says this, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a foolish idea if we let the heart determine what's true, what's real, right? I'm getting nods. I'm getting nods because you all go to church on Sunday morning and you all believe in someone who calls himself the way. His name's Jesus. And you all believe in someone who calls himself the truth. And so you believe that. You believe that there is a universal standard of what is right, what is true, what is wise, what is a good idea, and what is a bad idea, right? Or have churches, has religion allowed the idea, the ideals, if you will, from postmodernity to creep in to its doors? Well, it's no secret that America is growing ever churchless. 40 million less people go to church today than they did 10 years ago. To compare that, that's Canada's population. The population of Canada does not go to church in America more than what happened 10 years ago today. America is growing ever churchless. And while the idea, the medical idea of bloodletting went out of vogue in the 20th century, the idea of scriptural bloodletting is alive and well. See, a lot of church or religious communities, in order to save themselves, have opened themselves up, 
open themselves up and let themselves be drained of doctrine. Let themselves be drained of a confession. Here I stand. I'm standing on this. They let themselves even be cut open and drained of the cross of Christ. Why? To make religion more palatable to people who live in a postmodern world. And what's the result? Well, the intention was to save ourselves, just like George Washington, but the reality is congregation after congregation, church after church is dying. State of American churches is not only that we are growing churchless, but we're going, growing Christless. How about you? Have you let those ideals of postmodernism thought what establishes truth affect the what the way, the what of that which you believe? Let me ask it this way. How many of you have ever said things like this? I don't think that a loving God would allow dot, dot, dot. Or I don't feel that God would be so exclusive to exclude dot, dot, dot. Or I don't think miracles make sense anymore. Or I feel pretty certain that God does, you fill in the blank. Where do those thoughts, where do those feelings come from? They don't come from a higher calling. They don't come from a higher power. They come from your heart. They come from your heart that is deceitful and what God describes as beyond all cure. And so if you say those things and if you stake your claim of truth on those things, well, what else are you doing than trading the big T truth for your small T truth? What else are you doing than trading something that God calls wise for something that is not wisdom? Why is it that the state of American churches and the state of even individual Christians has gotten to where it is today? Well, I think leave it to the cultural experts at GQ magazine to hit the nail right on the head. GQ magazine, Gentleman Quarterly magazine came out with an article in last April's magazine uh, about the Bible. It featured the Bible and the article was entitled this. 21 books you don't have to read. And the Bible made the list. So why in the world did the world's all-time bestseller, the book that has sold more copies than any other book in all of history, fail to make the list of books you should read and in fact make the book list that you don't have to read? Editor Jesse Ball said this, he said, the Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but in who actuality haven't read it. The reason that unchurched people like Jesse Ball think that the Bible is not worth reading is because church people, Christian people haven't even read the Bible. 35% of Christians say they did not open their Bible once in the last year other than being in church. 
10% of Christians say they opened their Bible just three, maybe four times in the last year other than going to church. That means just under 50% of all Christendom has not opened their Bibles in the last year. How about you? How many of us have gone not just day after day, but week after week or month after month, maybe a year or two without sitting down with the one who is for us all, without sitting down with the one who said in me resides all understanding, all truth, all wisdom. The one who says I have lived and I have died for you. The reason that wisdom is bleeding from our veins is because by and large, Christians aren't connecting to the heart of truth. The reason why wisdom is bleeding from our veins is because so many Christians are not connecting themselves to the heart of all wisdom and all truth. And now I see some of you starting to cross your arms like this because you're thinking to yourself, shoot, I came to church on the Sunday, the one Sunday where pastor's going to get up there and bang his Bible and be like, y'all just need to read the good book. If you just got to read it and you'll be better. And I came to hear a pastor say, of course, pastor things about what I need to do. Read the Bible. I get it. Let me tell you right now, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell you what you need to do because you already know what we have. We have a God who in his word says, come to me, come to me through my word, through the, through the grace and the gospel that I've given you, come to me. And like a father who loves his children, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to give you rest. So this is not going to be that. It's not going to be just a sermon telling you about what to do. Because if you're anything like me, and if your life's anything like mine, you know what to do. There's just not a whole lot of time to do it. And if we're talking about reading the Bible, let's be honest. This is a big book. Some of us love to read. Some of you prefer not to spend your free time curled up with a good book. And you're not going to read any book that's this big unless it's Harry Potter. So I get that. And besides the fact that this is a big book, let's be real about the fact that this is not a simple book. It wasn't written by modern authors. In fact, the earliest, the the most recent additions to this book were written 1900 years ago. There are some prophecies and poetry that is written 3,500 years ago. And let me be the first to say this. I went to school for a lot of years. I studied one book. And there are still times where I sit down and read this book. And I wonder, what in the world does that mean? I get it. Some of you don't like to read books. Some of you don't like to read books that might not be so simple to understand. But that's not even the most complicated issue when it comes to reading God's word. I think it's because the kind of people that go to this church are not the kind of people who just sit around for four, five hours every day. The kind of people who go to this church are the kind of people who don't just sit around and twiddle their thumbs with nothing to do. The kind of people who go to this church are people who have families, people who have careers, 
people who have jobs that demand overtime. They're raising little kids. They're running kids to soccer practices and birthday parties. And some of you are taking care of your parents' health. The kind of people that go to this church are juggling a calendar full of things, good things to do, love their friends, be all for one of their friends. And so taking the time to sit down and read a book that demands not just a few minutes flicking through on your app at a stoplight or a few minutes just flicking through in the waiting room of your next doctor appointment, but a book that takes quality and quantity time to understand and digest and meditate and think about, well, time's not always present. And so I get that. And so what I'm going to do today is not just add one more what to the long list of things of what you need to do. What I want to do is talk about why. I'm going to talk about why reading this book gives you wisdom. I want to talk about why, the why for this book and why reading this book will give you the wisdom to see that being a Christian, living your life as a Christian and as a disciple gives you the wisdom to discern in your life what is a good idea and what's a bad idea. Why living your life in such a way uh, where you plug yourself into wisdom will give you the wisdom to discern how to order your life so that you never feel too busy. I want to talk about why this book can give you the wisdom to understand ideas and concepts that the world's smartest people struggle to understand. That's what I want to do. I want to talk about this book that can give you wisdom to live with an uncommon courage in a world that's living without very much conviction. So with that, can I read another part of 1 Corinthians? If you have your um, finger open, I want to reread part of the lesson we read this morning, okay? I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with just the last two verses, verse 30 and 31. There Paul says, It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with elegance or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory from before time began. As we talk about wisdom, we need to differentiate between godly wisdom and human wisdom because it's a matter of life and death. Let me explain that. You see, human wisdom, Paul talks about, and I think you would agree, you've seen human wisdom. What does it look like? It looks like elegance. 
It looks like people who can elegantly move between difficult ideas. It comes to you with wise and persuasive words, a demonstration of power with speech. And oftentimes wisdom itself, who does it come from? It comes from people who have power, people who stand on a stage, people who stand behind a podium, people who stand at the head of a classroom, people who raise their hand in classroom. These are people that are wise and all of the marks of human wisdom, they're seen in life. Human wisdom is a matter of life. It's seen in life. It grasps things in this life and it understands them. The godly wisdom doesn't come with elegance. It doesn't come with wise or persuasive words. In fact, you remember the reading from earlier, Paul talks about, think about who is wise. People not of noble birth, people who are humble, people who are lowly. Wisdom doesn't come with grasping understanding. In fact, wisdom, godly wisdom comes with wrestling with a mystery. Mysteries, things that maybe you don't understand. And Paul said it best. He said, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so while the marks of human wisdom are seen most clearly in the lives of humans, godly wisdom is seen most clearly in the death of Jesus. It is Christ and him crucified. It is him and him alone. It is his name that is above all names that is wisdom. And that is why Paul said, I resolved to know nothing, nothing, nothing else while I was with you except for this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, the key to wisdom is the cross. The key to wisdom is an open tomb. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes uh, from a pastor who was, well, lived a long time ago. His name was Origen. And he, and he said, reading the Bible and understanding what the Bible's message is and understanding what it is for life is a lot like going into a mansion where every door is locked and there's keys scattered all over the place. And your joy, your job is a joy as Bible believers, as disciples, is to go into the house and try to open the doors. And so you try this key to understand this message of God's word. And you pull from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you try to make sense of what this prophecy meant with this parable. And you open, try to open all of these doors to understand what the Bible's message is. That's how he describes Bible reading. That's how he describes taking the knowledge of the Bible and, and having it open your mind for how to live, it says there's only one key. In the end, there's only one key that opens up every single door. And that key is the person himself of Jesus Christ. It is only Jesus Christ that opens up the knowledge of what is contained in the scripture and makes it known, makes it real, makes it revealed to you and gives you wisdom and knowledge to live the way you do. The key to wisdom is Christ. It opens up an empty tomb and it shows you that inside is a God who lives and a God who lives for you and a God who lives through you and in you. Can I show you just five verses um, of God's word that demonstrate what this wisdom looks like in your life? Let me ask you this. Do you ever feel alone? Do you ever feel by yourself? Well, here's a truth. 
Here's the truth and believe this truth and you will never feel alone again. Believe this reality and you will never, never be without wisdom to operate in a group of people or by yourself feeling together in community or feeling loneliness. Jesus said, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. That is wisdom for your life. Do you feel worries about your future? Jesus said this. He said, do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. If you believe that reality, you have the wisdom to proceed down any path in life, never worrying about which way the path is going because you never have to be concerned because you have a God who said, you are worth my life. You have a one and an all for one savior who said, God blesses those who are humble for they will inherit the whole earth. Think about that. God blesses the humble. If you believe that reality, if you believe that truth, you never have to be intimidated. You never have to be afraid of when you're with people who you deem to be maybe more superior than you. And you never have to act arrogant because you never have to feel the need to be superior to anyone because you know you have a God who has promised to bless the humble. Do you have a problem dealing with your anger? Maybe a problem dealing with disappointment or people that make you mad? You want to walk with wisdom? Listen to these words. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. If you believe that reality, any anger that you have towards anybody else, any feelings of disappointment that you have towards the way someone's treating you is transformed. It's transformed to forgiveness and you can walk with wisdom in even the most heated situations. Can I give you one more? Jesus said this. He said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. If you've been walking through life, beating yourself up because of the mistakes that you've made, calling yourself stupid, calling yourself less than, calling yourself not enough because you did this or you did that, here is wisdom. Here's wisdom for you to let you know that you are enough and you are wrapped in the wisdom of him who is wisdom personified. You are wrapped in Christ Jesus, who, as Paul said, was for us wisdom from God. That is your righteousness that is your holiness, that is your redemption. The key to wisdom is the cross. It is the cross of Jesus Christ and it is him alone who opens up the mysteries found in scripture, the mysteries that all point to him that said, it is me who is all for you. There is one and I'm all for you. That is wisdom personified. That is Jesus Christ. And my friend, that is it. That's why. That's the why. That's the why for why Christians are people who are disciples for wisdom, for more wisdom, who can never get enough wisdom. Because this is a promise that Jesus made. It was from our gospel. He said this. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It all comes down to that. You remain in me and I in you. You can live wisely. Apart from me, you can't do anything. And so it all comes down to that, right? 
if you actually believe that. But if you think that you have the thoughts, that you have the ideas, if you feel that you can live on your own without this book, well, then you'll never need to read it. You'll never make the time for it. You'll never understand it. Your life will always be too busy. But if you believe that, if you believe what Jeremiah said, where he said that the heart is deceitful and without cure, you're going to cling to this book because it has everything you need. You're going to cling to what John said, that if you remain in me, I will remain in you because you will know that apart from it, nothing will make sense. Nothing will be understood. Life will always be blurry. But with it, you can see life clearly because you have Christ's wisdom. You have his truth. Can I tell you the thing about this week? We're kind of taking a step back. We're kind of taking a step back in the whole idea of living all for one. Because the reality is you can't live all for one if you're a fool. You can't live for anybody if you live with an understanding of bad ideas. But if you have an understanding of wisdom, then what you'll notice is you don't have to be a subject matter expert on the Bible. But when you're connected to the vine, you can grow fruit, fruit that will allow you to be all for another. That's what Zach found out. Zach was the kind of guy who really worked hard and he worked really, really hard to be the best and to be the brightest. At work, he worked and worked and worked until even his boss said, dude, you got to slow down. In his personal life, in his volunteer life, he would serve and serve and serve and he would give and give and give until his friends told him, Zach, you're going to kill yourself. You got to take it easy. You're not helping anybody. He's not helping yourself. Then one day, Zach got a letter. He got a letter from his mom and the letter was short. Here's what it says. It said, if a tree wants to provide shade, has to grow roots. Jesus said, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. I am the vine. You are the branches. Friends, listen, if, if you want to provide love, if you want to provide forgiveness, if you want to provide joy, if you want to be the one who goes to your neighbors, to your friends and your family and provides rest for their souls, if you want to be the one who drops wisdom bombs on the people in your life, not to promote yourself, but because you want them to know what you know, that this is a good idea and this is a bad idea and you can live better knowing Christ's wisdom. If you want to live a life of love where every group you ever find yourself in becomes a community, a community that gets a sense of belonging because there is one who is for all, there's nothing better that you can do then plant roots, then plant roots in God's word and grow in God's gospel. That's the only way to do it. That's the only way we live. Why do we read this book? Because we do not have a sappy sandal footed Jesus who just gives us facts to learn, who just gives us more things to do. But we have a God who is wisdom for you who's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, who's the commander of angel armies and who is the God who is 
all for you. A God who is one, who is for all, and gives us the wisdom to live all for one. Amen.